Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. If you will, turn with me to Acts chapter 6. And we're going to be studying a larger section, so it'd be good if you had your Bible open, because we're going to be referencing many texts in, in that section. So if you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles in the back. You could probably raise your hand and someone will bring you a Bible. That's the kind of church we are, so... Uh, in, in the 1970s, which basically is right around when the Calvary Chapel movement was sort of beginning, uh, there were two young men who were students at Oregon State University, and they were living in a fraternity, and they were particularly convicted because they were Christians, and they were convicted because they felt like they weren't being very good witnesses in their fraternity. And so they decided that they would come together, these two men, and they would pray. They would just pray together. They did it, I think, a few times a week. They came together, they prayed. And then, when the quarter was done, they decided something very courageous. It was simple, but it was pretty courageous. They decided to each invite one more fraternity brother into this little prayer and Bible study. And so it went from two to four. And then by the next quarter, to eight. And like many things in life, you know, the steam begins to build. And so soon, within about a year or two, there were a hundred fraternity and sorority men and women gathering in a fraternity in their, like, family room, studying God's word and praying. Now, if you know anything about fraternities and sororities, it's not exactly the reputation they get, right? And so actually, kind of in a sarcastic way, this fraternity began to be known as the God Squad House. Not, not exactly what they were going for. And so eventually the, the president and kind of the, the execs of the fraternity got together and they were kind of done with this. And so they banished the Bible study and prayer time from the premise of the fraternity Now, if that was the end of the story, it would be a tragedy, sort of a Shakespearean tragedy, but the story doesn't end there, right? The story actually, in many ways, just begins there. I think like this story, Christianity is a bit like a young adult. Sometimes you got to kick them out in order for them to grow up. And that's exactly what's going to happen in this little movement of God on this campus in Oregon. God had to kick them out in order for them to grow up. Now, we ended in Acts 6, pretty much halfway through Acts 6 last week. And we were introduced to a particular person, Stephen. It's a good name. It's a strong name. And he's a deacon in the early church. Right? And, and, and it says in, early in chapter 6 that he was filled with the spirit and wisdom and faith and power. And, and he served as a deacon as he served widows and orphans in the early church. And really, what we're going to learn is that in God's providence, he wouldn't just serve widows and orphans. He, he wouldn't play just a deacon role. But really, Stephen plays one of the biggest roles in the early church. Now, what do I mean? Well, when God's Spirit was poured out there in Acts 2 at Pentecost, right, 
we've got thousands upon thousands who are saved, right? And then there's, there's persecution, there's hostility, but, but the, the, the train is moving, right? The wind of the Spirit is moving, and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are being saved. And so we get to chapter 5, verse 42, and we read these words that every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. And why would they, right? I mean, this is highly effective, right? As the old adage is, is true, if it ain't work, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? I, I even got it wrong, right? Right? And this, it, it ain't broken. It, the fruitfulness here in this early church is for all to see. Thousands upon thousands are, well, they're coming to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And yet they're still in Jerusalem, aren't they? And sort of echoing in the back of their mind is some of Jesus' last words in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which says, wait, stay in Jerusalem until the power comes, until the Spirit descends, and you will be my witnesses first in Jerusalem. But not lastly in Jerusalem, just first in Jerusalem. And then to Judea, Samaria, and eventually to the ends of the earth. And yet this group, they're, they're in Jerusalem. The Spirit has been poured out. People are coming to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So how is God going to kick them out of Jerusalem? They continue to be in the temple. And yet, to use sort of Jesus' language in the gospel, we have this new wine bursting out. And what does Jesus say about new wine? You can't put new wine in old wineskins. You've got to put it in new wineskins. And so, and I'm going to cheat a bit here. I'm going to steal a verse from next week's sermon. But, but if you look at the first verse of chapter 8, verse 1, we read this. Jesus, and here's a, or sorry, Stephen, and this is a spoiler alert. Stephen's going to die, okay? Well, after Stephen's death, after his body is barely buried, we read these words that, that there arose on that day great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions where Judea and Samaria. Sometimes you've got to kick them out in order to grow them out. Sometimes you've got to go to grow. Yeah, you like that, don't you? That one's mine. The big idea, and it'll be behind me this morning, and then we'll kind of go through our text in three parts, is simply this, that God was with his people as they went, and God is with his people now as they go. That's what we're going to look at. So turn with me to Acts chapter 6. I got to go there too. We'll start in verse 8. And Stephen... Full of grace and power, he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those of Sicilia, Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemy. 
blasphemous words against Moses and God, and they stirred up the people and elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? So we'll stop there. So again, we're introduced to Stephen. And he's described in verse 8 there as full of grace and power. And he's performing signs and wonders. And he's gaining quite the reputation. Now, maybe you're just wondering, what are these signs and wonders? Well, we don't exactly know, but, but we do know that they were, in some way or shape, they're, they're miracles. And so you might be wondering, what, what, well, do miracles still exist today? And the simple answer is, uh, of course so. Um, I, I don't think we're ever on strong ground to say what God can't do or shouldn't do. We, we should never be in the business of boxing God in. And yet, when you read the Bible and you look at signs and wonders in your Bible, often they're clustered around really important times of redemptive history. And what they're doing is that these signs and wonders, and think of maybe Elijah as an example. What these signs and wonders do, they're they're clustered around prophets uh, and times in which God is going to reveal something quite important to his people And so these signs and wonders, they sort of validate the prophet. And that's the function of these signs and wonders for Stephen. Something very important in redemptive history is happening in Jesus, or in Stephen. Now, we know early in Acts 6 that Stephen is a Hellenist Jew. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means he's a Greek-speaking Jewish man. You could think of him this way. He's sort of an immigrant living in Jerusalem. He's got his green card, but, but there's some cultural differences between him and many of the other Jews. And so he's there in Jerusalem. And that synagogue, it's not the most popular synagogue. And so you see the synagogue in verse 9. It's filled with all these different people groups. And this synagogue had sort of a vested interest in not making waves. They're already under the microscope. But Stephen's getting too hot to handle, isn't he? And so they deliver Stephen up to, or to the religious high court of the day, the, the Sanhedrin. And they do it on trumped-up charges. Don't, don't you see that there? In verse 12, they they, they actually pay people to give false testimony. And so they bring Stephen into the the high court of the land. This is the same high court that Jesus was recently taken to, where Jesus was sentenced to death. We're going to soon see that not a lot has changed. And then in verse 12, we hear some of the charges levied against Stephen. But then in verse 14, if you go there, it's sort of the official charges against Stephen. You're going to see three of them. He speaks against the holy place and the law. 
For we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So there's sort of a threefold charge or accusation levied against Stephen there in verse 14. So, so this holy place is, generally speaking, is talking about the holy land, right? The promised land. But, but also, more precisely, to the temple. That, that is, that there is the, the holy place in the holy land. And so, those are the first two accusations, that he's speaking against the land, against the temple. And then, thirdly, the charge is that Stephen is teaching against the law. Right, that the law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. Pretty serious accusations, right? So starting in chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest, he asks the million-dollar question, right? He brings Stephen in. The charges are put before him, and he says, What say you? Right? Are, are these things so? Is it true? Are you speaking against these things? Now, all religions have sacred cows, right? And, and I'm not talking literally, necessarily. I'm talking metaphorically. All religions have sacred cows. Those, those things in which you, you sort of can't touch without getting in trouble. Th- those things in which if you do them or don't do them, it breeds some sort of confidence before God. And as it relates to Israel in the first century, the three big sacred cows were the land, the temple, and the law. And so, just put yourself in in the first century Jewish mindset, right? They had the land. They got God then, right? Or at least they had part of the land at that point. They had the temple. They must have God. God must be good with them, must accept their worship, because they've got the temple. They have the law. They have the customs handed down over the years, so God must accept their worship. The the land, the temple, and the law were all very good things, good gifts, but they had been turned into these sort of sacred cows where they assumed that since they had them, God accepted them, period. And what we see starting in verse 2 of chapter 7 is that Stephen is going to dismantle this. He's going to come after the land, the temple, and the law. But, but, but I don't think, you know, first century Israel is the only one that has sacred cows. Right? We all have those sort of sacred cows, and, and what those sacred cows do for us is they give us confidence. So, so if we do these sort of things, or if we're uh, about these certain things, or if we, um, you know, accept these certain ministries, then we're good with God, right? I mean, we could turn any good thing into a sort of sacred cow. So we could think of like, oh, well, I've been baptized, so I know for certain that God accepts me. Or we could turn ethics into, or morals into a sacred cow, thinking, well, well, I'm a pretty good upstanding citizen. Therefore, God must accept me. Or we can even take an experience, right? Maybe a, a mystical experience we had with God. 
and say, oh, God must accept me because of this experience I had in high school when I threw a rock into a a river and, you know, God must accept me. We can turn so many things into sacred cows. Experiences, rituals, all these good things that we then get confidence and think our confidence is in these things. But what Stephen is about to tell us is that those are not where we should be putting our confidence. Those are just shifting sands. And yet when you think about it, when you think about where we find our confidence, that's what the Christian gospel is all about. It's all about confidence. You might not know the early story, but, but, but the early story of the Reformation, where it began, was Martin Luther was a, a priest, and he almost got hit by lightning. And it shook him to the core, as it would pr- probably shake all of us. His confidence was shot, right? He, he had done all the right things, but he realized he had put his confidence in the wrong place. But where is your confidence this morning? Where do you put your confidence? When you, when you think about God and you think about standing before God, what gives you confidence that he'll accept you? What, what gives you confidence that you can worship him in his presence? Well, in many ways, the Christian gospel that we hold forth and that we hold out to, to one another and that I hold out to you this morning is the gospel of confidence, that you can have confidence before God because of Jesus Christ. That is what Stephen's about to teach. Not confidence in where you grew up, not confidence in your parents' faith, not confidence in what you did as a kid or what you're doing right now, but confidence in God through Jesus Christ because he lived the perfect life and died and was resurrected. Our confidence is in him. So in many ways, this text, although it's a, I think it's a very encouraging text, I really do think this is a a really encouraging story for us this morning. But embedded in this encouraging story is actually a warning to us. It's it's a warning that we can put our hope and confidence in all of the wrong places. So let's now look at how Stephen dismantles the sacred cows of Israel in the early church. Now, I'm going to read like 53 verses. Okay, so if you need to go get a cup of coffee, if you need to stand, just shake it off. We're going to do this, okay? Okay, this is God's word. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go to the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there and into the land which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nations that they serve, said God. And after that, they should come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham 
became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob the twelve patriarchs. Verse 9, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before the Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great afflictions, and our father could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they are carried back to Shechem and laid in a tomb that Abraham had brought from a sum of silver from the sons of Haram and Shechem. Verse 17, but as time, but as the time of promise drew near, which God granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. And this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as his own son. And Moses was instructed in all wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in the words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended an opposed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hands, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them, and they were quarreling, and he tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the, men was, but the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you not want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in flames of fire and bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed in his sight, and he drew near to look. There came a voice of the Lord, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandal from your feet, for this place where you're standing is holy ground. I am surely seen the affliction of your people who are in Egypt and have heard their groanings, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom you have rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in a bush. This man led him out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who, who was in the congregation of the wilderness when the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with, with our fathers, he received a living oracle to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they returned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, he led us out from the land of Egypt. We do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices to the idol and those rejoicing in the words of their hands. But God turned away and gave them away to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring me to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness of the house, O house of Israel? 
you took up the tent of Moloch and the star of the god Arephan, and the image that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of wilderness and the, wilder, uh, the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had been seeing. Our father. Our fathers in turn brought it out with them into Joshua and they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? And what is the place of my feet? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so you do. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Amen. Make sense? I should sit down then. All right. There's a lot in that sermon. That sort of defense that turns into a a heralding of God's truth. And you'll notice that, you know, uh, Stephen starts back in Abraham and just starts going through it. I mean, just imagine if I sat and I said, all right, it's going to be a long one. We're starting in Genesis and we're going to end, right, you know, in Acts. Well, that's what Stephen does. He, he, he takes these examples of, of Abraham and Joseph and Moses and Solomon and David and the prophets and he kind of marches through the Old Testament to dismantle the sacred cows of the land, the temple, and the law. Now, I I can't say everything about this, but but let me just point out a few things. Look at verse 2. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. What's the point? God was with Abraham when he was not in the promised land. Then you go to Joseph. And you go to verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But, and here's the little phrase, God was with him. You'll notice that Egypt comes like up a dozen times. Egypt, 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 Egypt. Egypt's not a four-letter word, but it is a four-letter word, all right? It's like a dirty word. It's, Egypt is sort of the Las Vegas of the time. And yet, even as the patriarchs, And even as Joseph was in Egypt, God was with his people in Egypt. And then we get to the sort of the kicker, the clincher, Moses, right? And just think about Moses. Moses lived outside of the Holy Land. He was raised in Egypt. He grew up in Midian. Think think about his, think about what the miracles, some of the greatest miracles in all your Bible take place. Not in the promised land, Egypt, the wilderness, the Red Sea, the plagues. And then we get this story about Moses meeting God, right? 
He hears God in the burning bush and God speaks to him and says, take off your sandals because this is holy ground. Well, we could translate that really simply with one other word. It's not just holy ground. This is holy land. I mean, putting this all together, it's, it's really clear. Where is the holy land? It's anywhere God is with his people. Holy ground, holy land is anywhere God is with his people. Well, what about the law? Well, look at verse 37. There, Stephen quotes Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. And there Moses is saying that there will come a prophet someday like me, like Moses, but a prophet who's greater than Moses. That the law wasn't just a bunch of rules, but the law was actually pointing somewhere. It had a destination. And that destination is the prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ. That's what the law was intended to point to. The coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. What about the temple? Well, once again, God's people thought, well, we have the temple, and and the temple was God's provisional means of dealing with their sins so that God's people could be in God's presence. That's, that's the function of the temple, right? The, the, the drama of the entire Bible is how can God's people be in God's presence? Answer, they need a temple. They need a mediator. They need sacrifices. They need a way in which their sins can be dealt with. They need a way in which their unholiness can be made holy. It's the purpose of the temple. But it was provisional. When we get there, a quote in Isaiah 66, the the quote is in verses 48 and 50. Let me read it. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? And what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? Do you you see what the prophet's saying here? And what Moses is quoting? Right? God can't be contained. Right? God is not on house arrest in his temple. God's much bigger than that. God was with his people, and God has always been with his people. He was with Abraham when he was a pagan in Mesopotamia. He was with Joseph when he was sold into slavery and was in Egypt. God was with Moses when he was raised in Egypt and as he went on. God was with David when he was banished. He was the king and then he was banished. He was like a a king without a kingdom. And yet God was with David and Solomon and the prophets. God has always been with his people. Actually, one of the most fascinating things when you think about it in the book of Ezekiel, right? They're in exile, and what? who comes to Ezekiel when he's in exile? God does. As trippy as the, the vision of, of um, Ezekiel chapter 2 is, and it's trippy, all right? The whole point of that is God went to Babylon. Even when their sin exiled them to Babylon, God showed up. Remember Moses? Remember? Moses is on the mountain and he comes down on the mountain and everyone like, like is like, I need sunglasses because Moses is like shining, right? And the point of that is that God had met with God and when people meet with God, it's like, 
it's like they've been, you know, their, their skin has been tanned or something, right? They, they, they've been so affected by God that they, like, shine. Did you see what Stephen is described as? Right? We see that at the end of chapter 6. And gazing at them, all who sat at the council saw that his face was like an angel. Now, what's that point? That's the same language of Moses back in Exodus. People who meet with God shine. And so now Stephen is in a long line of people who God is with. And then you sort of get the the verbal hammer coming down on verse 51. Did Did you hear that? I mean... Just imagine, right? I mean, verse 51 is like those preachers we see who get up on a soapbox and they they start off, you stiff-necked people, right? That's Stephen. And the pronouns change, right? All before it was us, us, we, we, we. And then he changed and says, you. You are uncircumcised. You have, you murdered Jesus. His point couldn't be clear, right? You thought you had the land and that, oh, you had God too. You, you, you thought that you had the temple, so, hey, you're, you're in good standing before God. You, you thought that you had the law, so you had a way in which that you could communicate and have a relationship with God, but you've missed it all. You could have the land, the temple, and the law and still be damned. Isn't that his language? And yet, wherever God's people went, God was with them. Isn't that the, the point of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when Paul says in verse 16, he, he's, he's re, kind of rebuking false teachers in the early church, and then Paul says this in verse 16. It's shocking when you think about it. He says, surely you know that you are God's temple. And, and the you there is plural. Meaning, you Christians, as you meet together, you're God's temple. That is where God meets you in the church. As you gather, as Christians come together, God is with you. God is present with you. God dwells among you. This is, this is why we gather every Sunday. Because God is present with us. You might have come in this morning and thought, yeah, I'm coming on an ordinary Sunday to meet with ordinary Christians at an ordinary church where guitar strings ordinarily break. But there is nothing ordinary about this church. Do you know that? God is with us. Where God's spirit dwells and God's truth is proclaimed, God is with us present, just like he's present there with Stephen. God was with Adam and Eve, and from there, God has been with his people. God had left the temple in Ezekiel's time, in the captivity, in the days of the exile. And I think the point here is really clear. Stephen's saying, we got to go too. It's time. New wine is bursting forth out of this old wine skin of the temple and the land, and we got to go. The new covenant is here in Christ's blood. We got to go. But the question is, how are they going to go, right? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. So how is God going to scatter them? Look at verse 54. 
Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And, with, and when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen finishes his sermon, his defense, and they are irate, right? I, I've had people fall asleep in my sermon. I've had, at this point, never someone want to murder me because of a sermon. But that's the story here. They, they want to kill him. The, the, the images, they're like, don't want to hear it. They put their fingers in their ears. They're running, and they're like, we got to get this guy. And so they stone him. They, they lead him outside of the city. And I don't know if you notice this, but, and I encourage you, over lunch or this week, take this text, actually all of it, Stephen's sermon and how Stephen is described and then Stephen's death. Look at it and try to see all the different references to Jesus. Because there's a lot of them, right? Look at Stephen's last words. Don't hold this against them. Don't those sound eerily similar to some of Jesus' last words? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they've done. You see, Stephen is not just testifying and witnessing to the truth of the gospel with his words. He's doing it with his life, isn't he? This is what discipleship is. Discipleship is saying, I, I so want to follow Jesus that I want to give testimony to Jesus in his words and deeds. I want to follow Jesus. And where Jesus goes, I go. Jesus' words are my words. And so he sort of steals Jesus' words, right? Um, plagiarism is never a good thing, except for when you plagiarize Jesus, I think. And so he steals some of Jesus' last words. And then notice the description of his death. And he fell asleep, which is a really bizarre way of describing such a horrific death. I know nothing of stoning, but if I close my eyes and think about it for a second, it sounds horrific. And yet he's described as just falling asleep. Now, why would that be a description? I think it's because of the vision in the middle of that section. Do you see that vision? The vision starting in verse 55. It's a Daniel-like vision, right? Stephen sees the Son of Man, that, that Daniel vision in Daniel 7, or, or that, that, that vision that John sees in the book of Revelation. He sees the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sees the, the Revelation 4 and 5, that the throne room of God, right? He sees Jesus. But notice what Jesus is doing. And if you miss it, Luke tells us twice because he doesn't want us to miss it. Jesus, it says in so many different gospels and in Revelation, it says Jesus sits down at the majesty on high. Why? Because Jesus has rested from his work. 
Notice in verse 55 and 56, Jesus is not sitting. Jesus is standing. This is why I think this is the most encouraging verse in the book of Acts. Jesus stands. Some of you recently have been to a graduation ceremony, right? At the end, right, the crowd stands up. Why? To celebrate, to affirm, to congratulate the graduates on well done for all that hard work in school, right? That's what we do. Standing is a sign of approval. It's a sign of congratulations. It's a sign of welcoming into a new phase of life. And that's what Jesus does to Stephen. He faithfully testifies, and as he's dying, Jesus stands up with his arms open and says, well done, well done. I accept you. I accept your witness. I accept your testimony. I accept your words. I accept your life. Come into eternal life with me. It's amazing. No wonder the description of him dying is that he just fell asleep. Now, we we read this story, and maybe you're asking yourself, Stephen's pretty courageous, right? Would I be that courageous in a moment like that? Well, maybe, maybe not. But courage always starts small, doesn't it? It starts with small faithfulness. Being courageous in the small things will lead you to be courageous and the big things. And not only that, but I think we learned a valuable lesson. It's this, that we need such a heavenly vision of Jesus in his glory and his goodness that it makes, that it just overshadows these earthly joys. Right? The old saying, that person was so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. I don't believe that in one second. Be so heavenly minded that you're so earthly good. We're going to end with a hymn. It's a hymn of Martin Luther that he wrote. The final words are eerily similar to Stephen's. We will sing in a moment, let goods and kindreds go. And this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. What a scene this is. And the church scatters. And it soars into Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, all through the faithful testimony of Stephen and the early church. That little Bible study, a hundred fraternity men and women and sorority women, like, you can't just walk into a fraternity. You got to be Greek in order to do that. So it was a very fraternity, sorority-centered Bible study. But they got kicked out. And they went to this place called the Westminster House. And for about a decade, it was the biggest student-led campus ministry on Oregon State University's campus. I was telling this story to a a guy in the fraternity to try to inspire him that what God could do with little things, little faith, like mustard seed faith, what God could do. And I was telling him this story of what God did in the 70s. And the barista walked over and said, my dad grew up in Corvallis and he came to Christ at the gathering. Sometimes, got to kick them out in order to grow us up. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful 
for the reminder that you take little acts of obedience and faithfulness and courage and you turn the tides of history. Lord, we're so grateful for all that your son is doing in our lives. Lord, there is something extraordinary about these men and women coming from all over, all walks of life, all different histories. And we come together bound by blood, bound by our union with Christ. Lord, we pray that you would add, like you did to their church, that you would add to that number. Let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.